From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. She's got to establish that it could not have been Avery who did it. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily have to have the other person, but just factually exclude Mr. Avery and Mr. Dassey from it. Stephen Avery served 18 years for a sexual assault and attempted murder he did not commit. While waiting for his $36 million lawsuit against the county that wrongfully convicted him, he was arrested for the murder of a Wisconsin photographer by the same county court. Last month, Avery's attorneys won the right to appeal the conviction. With us today is Craig Torchino, director of Miami Law's Innocence Clinic and our resident making a murder expert. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Craig. Thanks for coming back. Good morning. I guess my first question is what happened to Avery's wrongful conviction the first time around and uh, his conviction and imprisonment, the civil suit from that first case? Okay. Well, in order to to get a grasp on that, we got to go back to what happened. So in 1995, he's charged uh, with a rape in Wisconsin. And apparently there are 16 people who's testified that he was elsewhere at the time. Um, but a forensic analyst in, in Manitowoc County uh, claimed that a hair found on one of Avery's shirts was consistent with a hair from the victim. Uh, so he goes to trial, he gets convicted, and he gets sentenced to 32 years in prison. All the while, there's this other guy named Gregory Allen, who's another suspect that the law enforcement doesn't bother investigating. The advent of DNA comes up. Um, they, uh, Avery petitions to have DNA testing with the help of the Wisconsin Innocence Project, uh, and they find a pubic hair on the victim that ma- the, there is a DNA match. It excludes Stephen Avery and matches Gregory Allen. Mm-hmm. Um, so he gets exonerated. Avery gets exonerated after he, eighteen years. years okay. After eight, serving eighteen years for a rape he didn't he didn't commit, uh, and he files a civil suit uh, in that. And he's uh, it's a federal civil suit, I believe, and he's alleging uh, damages of thirty six million dollars, significant. Um, during the pendency of that, um, unbeknownst to Mr. Avery, in 1995, law enforcement got wind that this Gregory Allen guy had confessed to the rape that Avery was convicted of. Mm-hmm. They didn't pursue it. Fast forward towards the end of the litigation. Now they're looking at paying a big, uh, a big judgment. And then Avery gets tied up into, well, right before he gets tied up into the Halbach murder, the defense, the excuse me, uh, Avery's lawyers find the report from 1995 saying that Allen confessed and the police didn't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. So now it's looking really good for Avery. Mm-hmm. Then coincidence, happenstance, or whatever um, hand thrust Avery into the Halbach murder, mm-hmm. and he was forced to settle the claim for four hundred thousand dollars dismissing all claims because he needed to pay legal fees to defend himself against the Halleback murder. So that's the resolution of his his first. If not for the Halleback murder, he would have gotten multiple million dollar settlement out of that, I'm assuming. He would he would have gotten a settlement. I doubt he would have gotten 32 million, but it would have been millions. It would be plural. more than $400,000. Certainly. Right. Certainly would have. Especially with the resu- with the revelation that law enforcement knew 10 years previously that another person who was a suspect that they didn't investigate before had then subsequently confessed to it. Mm-hmm. That That's a bit of a smoking gun. Right. Interesting. Um, well, now that he's won a right to an appeal of his current conviction, what's the TikTok going from here? Well, what happened, He's he has an appeal pending 
uh, on some post-conviction proceedings. Mm -hmm. And what happened there is he wanted to file uh, supplemental post-conviction proceedings. So what the appellate court did, specifically with regard to these bones, which I'll get to in a second. So what the appellate court did, since appellate courts aren't set up for taking evidence, and this this resolution requires evidence, sent it back to the trial court, mm -hmm. ordering the trial court to take evidence from witnesses and so forth about this issue of the bones and, and potential destruction of evidence, and then report back to the appellate court, and then the appellate court can deal with the law later. Is this the same court that wrongfully convicted him before? It's the same circuit court. I don't believe it's the same judge. I believe there's a new judge sitting mm -hmm. on it, not the same judge who presided over Mr. Avery's trial. Mm -hmm. So in a perfect world, and he he did get the appeal, he would get a new trial? I, well, ideally, it'd be a new trial mm -hmm. or potentially because there's this issue of the bones. Now, uh, there appears to have been bones and or bone fragments found in a gravel pit outside the Avery property that were not DNA tested mm -hmm. and presumably given back to the Halbach family as if they were Halbach's remains, which either were buried or cremated. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so essentially this evidence, if it were, if these bones were Halbach's, it would essentially destroy the state's entire theory that she was killed on the Avery property and the body was burned in the burn pit. If the bones found in a gravel pit elsewhere would lead to the conclusion that somebody else killed her outside and then brought the bones and planted them in, in, in Avery's property, which mm -hmm. essentially is what he's been saying all along. Mm -hmm. um, if that is the case, if that was done and there and there and Avery's able to establish that it was the law enforcement destroyed that evidence in bad faith, mm -hmm. he'd be entitled to flat out exoneration at that point. So He's literally, he, there's no way he won't be in prison for the next X number of years, even on the fastest track you can imagine. Yeah. One of the interesting things about this whole process of, of making a murder and, the, and the, the two seasons is it shows everybody how long this process takes in order to clear your innocence and how much work is involved in the lawyers who are trying to clear uh, and exonerate people. Uh, People, Stephen uh, uh, Avery's case has been going on for uh, since I mean 2003, I believe, is mm -hmm. when uh, he was uh, tied up in the in the um, Halbach murder. Mm -hmm. um, no, that's when he was exonerated the first time. I'm sorry, 2003 is when he was exonerated the first time. Um, his case has been going on. Uh, his uh, nephew Brendan Dassey, his case had been going on all the way up to the United States Supreme Court where they denied certiorari last year mm -hmm. and back. Um, so these are long, intense processes. Some all are on the appellate level, some back in the circuit court level with taking evidence. But everything is set up in the process to make each step that much more difficult for a defendant trying to prove their innocence. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Stephen's exoneration would immediately clear his nephew, Brendan Dassey. If there's a problem with the evidence in, in Stephen's case, there's mm -hmm. a problem with the evidence in Brendan's case. Mm -hmm. The same evidence was used to convict both men. Um, the only, the only, you know, it was the, the, the entire, the state's entire theory of this murder is consistent with regard to both cases. I think in, in the show we saw the, where the, um, where the court keeps all the materials and it's like, some place it's just kind of like opening up your rental storage locker and oh here it is over here you know it, it just seems you'd think after they had already messed it up once that they'd be a little more careful the second time around and it doesn't seem that 
got bones or handing them off to people completely against. Yeah. Well, evidence storage. I mean, the courts, pardon me, the courts are required to, to store evidence. Um, then the question becomes, if it's biological in nature, what is the scientifically adequate way of storing it? Mm -hmm. um, Wisconsin has a statute that addresses that. That mm -hmm. says if there's biological evidence, it shall be kept through the duration of the sentence for the person who was convicted of it. Uh, in this case, um, for both uh, Brendan and Stephen, mm -hmm. that would be for the rest of their lives because they both got life sentences. Mm -hmm. um, and it's supposed to be kept in a manner that will preserve it for future DNA testing if possible. The only way uh, law enforcement is allowed to get rid of the evidence in, in Wisconsin is if they notify the defendant or the person sentenced and give them an opportunity to object to it, ask for it to be preserved, or ask for DNA testing. If indeed this, these bone fragments were given by law enforcement to the Hallbach family for disposal and on burial or cremation, uh, Mr. Avery or Mr. Dassey were never notified from what I can tell on this mm -hmm. and certainly from what uh, Ms. Eleanor is arguing. Mm -hmm. And that's a violation of, of Wisconsin law. Uh, it's also potentially a violation of federal law and the mm -hmm. due process clause. Hmm. Cracking it open again. Um, have you ever, I mean, Netflix has spent two seasons and like following this whole process. Uh, is this something that you see all the time in your innocence work or is this like, what the heck? Innocence work is by and large a very unsung uh, endeavor. Uh, if you want to get famous, not really the the way to go. Um, Although Catherine Zellner is doing well, okay. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is now, but people who have been doing this work toiled in anonymity from 1989 until about 2005. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and although Miss Elner is wildly successful in her endeavors and, and very, you know, uh, well thought of and deserves all the accolades that she gets, Netflix is making a dime off of this too. Sure. So they're not, they're not the altruistic uh, being wanting to shed the light on wrongful convictions. They're making some money on it too. I'm glad they decided to use their resources and shine the light into this particular particularly dark corner of the criminal justice system mm -hmm. because it's allowed people to see it more. And now when I tell people what I do, you it's either, oh, the innocence, that's like the innocence project mm -hmm. stuff or like making a murderer. And mm -hmm. now I have context to explain what we do here at the Miami Law Innocence Clinic in doing the exact type of work that Ms. Eleanor's doing for Mr. Avery. And at your innocence project here, I, I'm assuming Kathleen Zellner can do this because she has resources that most innocent clinics don't have. I mean, she has gone back and spent years and looking at every single piece of evidence and bringing in the world expert on, you know, hair or saliva or blood or whatever that those kinds of, of what's the word I'm looking for here you don't have the ability to contract those kinds of services in most innocent projects. Many don't. Some mm -hmm. are well-funded, some are not. Uh, some survive on donations, some survive by the largesse of a larger educational institution. Uh, but there's always a way to, to get the right thing done, accomplished. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I always tell my students is um, the work uh, – I will tell them at the beginning of class that, you know, I'm going to be hard on the police. I'm going to be hard on prosecutors. I'm going to be hard on judges, but I'm going to be hardest of all on defense lawyers who do not do their job. And we can see from the way Miss Eleanor is approaching this case, she's a defense lawyer who does do her job. Mm -hmm. um, 
even at her own expense. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you take on the obligation, in, in my view, the calling of representing a criminally accused or trying to exonerate the, mm -hmm. the wrongfully convicted, um, that needs to be done with, with care, dignity, and absolute zeal, regardless of what it's going to cost. Mm -hmm. You don't get um, ineffective counsel on the second bite of the apple, I assume. You don't, and that's an interesting question because the, the concept of ineffective assistance of counsel comes from the Sixth Amendment, that you have the right to counsel. Um, and that happens at the original trial and at the first direct appeal mm -hmm. that challenges what happened at the original trial. On post-conviction, where we always are in wrongful convictions and where Avery and Dassey are now, mm -hmm. there is no right to counsel. For that. Mm -hmm. Since there is no right to counsel, there's no right to effective assistance of counsel. Uh -huh. So if you want to be continually ineffective, do post-conviction law because you'll never get an effectiveness claim filed against you. I'm being sarcastic, right. of course, right? It, it, it just, it's that much more difficult. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you picture a pyramid, right, and you picture a trial at the bottom mm -hmm. and habeas corpus at the top, as you go closer to the point of the pyramid, that's how narrow your options for relief become get the higher you go up. Mm -hmm. We saw that with Brendan Dazzy's case. Started off, you know, wider. And as it went up through the Seventh Circuit and then Seventh Circuit en banc, and then finally got denied certiorari at the United States Supreme mm -hmm. Court, the options for relief be get narrower and narrower the higher you go up. Mm -hmm. Also, since you don't have the right to counsel, your options for assistance become that much more limited. Mm -hmm. uh, so you see many, many, probably the vast majority of post-conviction claims are filed pro se by by defendants on their on their own. Right. So getting counsel is just out of the goodness of whoever's heart, whoever's heart. Right. That or if there's family resources right. or certain in certain circumstances, uh, uh, pro se defendants have been successful in petitioning the court to appoint counsel for mm -hmm. them. But that only usually happens with it's if an exceptionally complicated uh, piece of post conviction litigation. Mm -hmm. hmm. Um. What are the odds of being wrongfully convicted twice? <laughs> I have absolutely no idea. Really, really um, bad I'd, luck. I'd, yeah. Uh, I'd like to say getting wrongfully convicted is like getting struck by lightning, but since 1989, there's been 2,400 wrongful convictions in the United States. So I think it happens a little bit more frequently than getting struck by lightning. Mm -hmm. Having it happen twice to the same person in the same county by the same law enforcement agency is uh, I would have to say is astronomical, um, and if that if this actually happened to to Mr. Avery, um, I it's just astounding. Mm -hmm. It's funny that his character his character he is is sometimes not the most likable person in the world. Um, I, I think that's kind of part of the the draw to the show is that you know you it feels more honest because some of the characters that they're fighting for it just sort of gross people to start with. Well, yeah. I mean, just because someone's a jerk doesn't mean they committed a murder. Exactly. Um, and I and think just that's because somebody's a part of And just be somebody, because somebody's a great guy doesn't mean they didn't do something horrible. There's Ted Bundy. Well, yeah, Ted Bundy or no. Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> we, can, we, can, we can edit, maybe edit this out. <laughs> I was going to suggest there's a fair amount of clergy who would otherwise be viewed as perfect, wonderful, pious, religious men who did horrible things to children. Right. So you to to say that's a nice guy, he does, doesn't deserve to be in prison, and this guy's a jerk, um, so he may have killed somebody. The person's personality is irrespective of the facts that landed him where they were. Right. 
Interesting. Um, so justice delayed, justice denied. Um, so Avery's already served 12 years of the life sentence after 18 years on his earlier wrongful conviction. If he's exonerated, does he get a second bite at suing the same government? Can well, he yeah. go after another $36 million? I, I would think so. This is because this is a completely separate piece of conduct by those governmental officials. Mm-hmm. The first one was based primarily on them having another uh, suspect that they didn't bother uh, uh, investigating, mm-hmm. who presumably looks a lot like Mr. Avery. Um, and they knew that he confessed 10 years after the conviction and didn't do anything about it. If if this is another wrongful conviction, all these all these steps of conduct taken by the police are completely distinct from that first rape, mm-hmm. uh, a wrongful conviction. So he would, I believe, have a chance uh, um, to to do that. To make uh, the town go to, bankrupt a second time. <laughs> yeah, well, it would be a, it would be astounding because of the what would have in order for Zellner's theory um, to to stand up. There's a lot of people who would have to done. There's people who would have done some really bad things for the purpose of hurting hurting Mr. Avery. Mm-hmm. And the more she uncovers, the more it sounds like it holds water. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is the fastest way to the end they're trying to achieve is of course finding the person who committed the murder. Right. Uh, but short of that, she has to really get every single. Like where where what's the tipping point on what does she have to get to without finding the person who did it to get him exonerated? She's got to establish that it could not have been Avery who did it. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily have to have the other person, but just factually exclude Mr. Avery and Mr. Dassey from it mm-hmm. um, on this. And from you know season two, she did a lot of stuff on the on the uh, the blood spatter on the vehicle. Um, and now the stuff with the bones, it's starting to look like the state's theory that they used at trial isn't really up to scientific snuff, mm-hmm. so to speak, especially if these bones come back the way I'm sure she's hoping they do. Interesting. Uh, any odds? Odds? Yeah. This whole thing is Are odd. you laying odds? <laughs> oh, those kind of odds. I'm sorry. I misunderstood. <laughs> um no, I'm not going to lay odds on this. Um, it's Zellner just, has a pretty good success rate. She does indeed. Um, it's really amazing. Uh, the work. I assume she doesn't take a case that she doesn't believe somewhere she can win. Um, I don't know. I would imagine probably not. And she's out on the limb on this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I don't, it's, I learned a long time ago not to use a divining rod with what courts do on particular cases. Mm-hmm. A long time ago, uh, an older, much older um, sort of mentor of mine said, you know, you know, you're a lawyer when you win a case, you shouldn't have won and lose a case. You should have, uh, you know, wait, I got that wrong. You'd finally become a lawyer <laughs> when you, when you lose a case, you should have won and win a case you should have lost. Right. right? So that happens to everybody. Uh-huh. Um, so I stopped a long time ago trying to figure out what courts do. Uh, I will say this, that, any post-conviction claim, no matter how good, is a, is always a Herculean effort mm-hmm. to convince a court that somebody that a jury found guilty is the, that the jury got it wrong mm-hmm. all those years ago. And that's always a difficult decision, especially if you don't have definitive scientific proof of it. Well, I think if he does get out, they all need to move out of Wisconsin. Yeah, forthwith. <laughs> Not his place. Um, anything else we should talk about? Um, I don't know. 
What would you like to talk about? I think we're good. <laughs> Thanks so much. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer. If you like the show, leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform and tell your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Ray D. Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's show was brought to you by We Robot, the ultimate interdisciplinary conference where law and policy meets design and development. In its eighth year and back at home base, April 12th and 13th. For more info, go to robots.law.miami.edu.